Welcome to Inside Ulster, the rugby podcast from the Bell Tell, with me, Neve Campbell, me, Jonathan Bradley, and me, Adam McKendrick. With expert analysis and special guests, let's kick off. And welcome to another episode of Inside Ulster. My name is Neve Campbell. I'm joined as always by Belfast Telegraph rugby correspondent Jonathan Bradley and our Bell Tale sports reporter Adam McKendry. It is a very happy Valentine's Day for Ireland rugby fans who no doubt are still in awe and in love, had to get it in there, with Andy Farrell's men after their thrilling win against France on Saturday. So we're going to be deep diving into that game and all the main talking points and as Ireland will have a few days off now before Italy next week and as is our podcast namesake, we'll of course be previewing Ulster's match against Glasgow on Friday night following a two weekend hiatus. But first, after all our chat last week about the atmosphere at the Aviva, or more so the lack of it in the past. Jonathan, how did it all fare out at the weekend? The atmosphere was good, but this is a be careful what you wish for type of situation because already the discourse has switched to how did so many French people get tickets for the game? <laughs> it's La Rochelle all over again. <laughs> yeah, so was, um, by some estimations, about 10,000 French fans um, in the Aviva with uh, 5,000 more in Dublin unable to get tickets. So... Um, it was a good uh, neutral atmosphere, I suppose. <laughs> Don't I mean, arise. It, it, it did help the atmosphere. Like, oh, it definitely I, did, yeah. I, I unfortunately wasn't able to go. I was watching it on TV, but it certainly seemed like the French fans were making a good go of it. I don't know how much it helps the Irish team if they're here in La Marseillaise after about an hour when the game's <laughs> hanging in the balance. But uh, Well, the Ulster players will be fairly familiar with it, given that it rings out at the terraces at Ravenhill fairly yeah, often. Yeah, that's true. Nick Timoney actually said he liked it when he hears that. Uh, that that's that's his favourite song, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the game in general? Because I was reading um, Mick Galway has a good column in, I think it's yeah Sunday World, and he said that, and I think this is a lot of fans' opinions, that Ireland would beat France, but not as emphatically. Um, one thing he said the green jersey now has an aura around it when players put it on they can expect to be on the winning side do you think that's a fair fair thing to say Adam? I think that's the greatest test match that I've possibly watched like I, I think that was especially the first half like we thought that Hugo Keenan's try was good and then Damian Penno goes and scores that try at the other end. We thought that was a great try and then James Lowe scores in the corner. Whether or not his foot was in touch is still debatable. I think it maybe did graze a few blades of grass. Debatable might be one word for it. Um, There was a a very convenient camera angle that did not appear on the TMO's list that suddenly appeared after the game which seemed to show fairly convincingly that uh, his foot had hit the grass but we'll uh, we'll put that aside for now and we'll we'll move on uh, it's not the most controversial TMO decision that was made in that game but I I just think that was the f- best two teams in the world showing exactly why they're the best two teams in the world I thought the physicality the creativity the desire was there from both sides from minute one to minute 80 and I just loved it it's one of those games that sort of reminds you why you love the sport of rugby, which is two teams just going at it, knowing that realistically that probably is the Grand Slam decider. I, I mean, Scotland are playing quite well at the moment, so they may have something to say whenever whenever Ireland play them later in the championship. But we real- just lost our six Scottish listeners after two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but realistically, you know, Ireland should now be on for a Grand Slam off the back of that game. And I think both teams realised that. And, you know, whenever you see, 
what the two teams are capable of. Like the individual brilliance in that game was off the charts. Like Kaelin Doris was superb. Um, I, th- I thought Jonathan Sexton ran the uh, ran the backs so well. James Lowe was so good. Mac Hansen was great. I thought McCluskey had a great game. Ringrose had a great game. Keenan had a great game. I'm basically just naming the entire island back line here. Um, the impact of the bench in the second half as well, which I'm sure we'll get on to. But, you know, Tom O'Toole coming on, having an absolute monstrous performance off the bench. Um, I just thought that that was a game that really highlighted the pinnacle of Test Rugby at the moment. And you know what? I, I almost wish it was a little bit closer at the end so that it had the grandstand finish that it probably deserved. I'm not saying Ireland weren't deserving winners by the margin that it was. I, I think they fully deserved that margin. But almost like for the game, the game almost deserved to have that finish where everyone was like on the edge of their seats until the final seconds. So um, I, like, I, I think that is the greatest test match that I have watched. You're spoiled whenever your your team is winning so well that you're like, oh, I wish it was actually a wee bit closer just for the drama. Yeah, <laughs> but, uh, but like, look, look I can't make this point enough. Ireland deserved the win that they got. Like they they were especially in that second half. I thought they were the ones who really grabbed the bull by the horns and actually started taking the game to France. I think France went into their shell a wee bit, and maybe fatigue hit them just a little. Just the fact that they were playing away from home and um, with all the travel, they they might have been the ones that just fatigued a little. And Ireland were the ones who were able to kick on. Um, but Ireland were fully deserving of their win. But yeah, it it was one of those games that you just really wished that there was jeopardy right until the end or, you know, it could swing on one decision or something. That was probably the only thing that that game was missing. What do you think, Johnny? Because we were saying last week, you know, because France are the reigning champions, Ireland ranked number one in the world, nearly pessimistic because it was like, oh, too much expectations put on this. And then... I think it, it did pay off. It, it was the game everyone wanted to see. Yeah, 100%. I think normally when you attach that much hype, and we've seen it with, um, you know, we see it with World Cup finals all the time, where World Cup finals don't really deliver on the expectation of the level of the game. But that was a game that people have been looking forward to probably since the last time these two teams played, which was a year ago. And to have a year's worth of hype to be in the second round of the championship being billed as a title decider it lived up to all the hype and more I think um, it was better than I think people expected the quality of the of the rugby and you can see that from the ball and play time like normally the ball and play time in rugby is normally below 50% whereas the ball and play time was right up about 46 minutes here and that was because there weren't mistakes, mm-hmm. there weren't penalties. Like you compare it to the amount of penalties that we saw both these teams ship in round one, and that made both those games, especially in the second half of the Ireland game against Wales, feel very stop-start. But both teams only conceded seven penalties, so 14 penalties in the game. We'll probably come on to talk about it whenever we come to talk about Tom O'Toole, but no scrums <laughs> really whatsoever. <laughs> like for a game that started on a scrum because James Lowe's kick bizarrely hit the spider cam and came back down. <laughs> thereafter, I think there were only like six or seven scrums Jeez, thereafter. I, for, I forgot about the spider cam. Yeah. But just to pick up on one point that you made, ball being in play for 46 minutes, for anybody who's maybe not aware, the average for the entirety of last season's championship of ball and play time was 36 minutes. So can you imagine playing for another 10 minutes at that intensity like that's just insane the levels of fitness that you need to have to be playing at that level putting your body through that much punishment 
is off the charts. Like that's the kind of display that we were given on Saturday. And I mean, I, I feel like the only way is down from here. Like, you know, the only way th- there's no game that is going to live up to that for the rest of the championship. We've just been treated to potentially the best game of 2023 and maybe for maybe for a good long time, to be honest. Adam's got no interest in the World Cup, just bin it off now. <laughs> well, no, no, like, you, you'll, obvi- you'll obviously have, like, the jeopardy in the World Cup, but in terms of the quality of a game, 100%, are, are like, we going to see the, that quality of a game again? Probably no, I not think for that, a long like, time. The quality, the quality on show would have put you in mind of whenever there used to be a large disparity between the Springboks and the All Blacks and you were watching rugby championship games. Like, I think back to that sort of 2013 test between those two. Like, it would have put you in mind of that whenever you were watching Southern Hemisphere rugby and it looked like it was from a different planet to mm. what you were watching in the Five Nations, mm-hmm. Six Nations. And that was a complete underlining for me of why, you know, we said this last week, people can probably still point to the All Blacks, still point to the Springboks being able to bring something different but for me it was just a complete underlining of the fact that these are the two best teams mm-hmm. in the world mm-hmm. and the thing that impressed me most was we sat here last week and said in the podcast that the game could end up being very cagey and it could end up yeah. you know both both teams kind of trying to feel each other out for the first few minutes what's the first sort of set play that Ireland run it's Finlay Beelham of all people passing back inside on a Joe Schmidt special to Hugo Keenan who just decides to put the head down and go straight between was it Intimac and Ramos and just straight over the line like quality and then we know Fran- what France are capable with with um, with their offloading and their passing and DuPont was obviously right in the middle of uh, Peno's try but just the fact that both teams kind of threw caution to the wind and just went for it. And to me, you know, that, as I've said, that is rugby at its purest form. That's rugby whenever it's the most enjoyable. And to be honest, like, that's a game that you would happily go back and watch seven days a week. Focusing on the Ulster players, and I know, Johnny, you had mentioned Tom O'Toole but you've also written in your column uh, for the Belfast Telegraph this week as well that the match felt of special significance for Rob Herring only for him to come off after 25 minutes with a head injury following the controversial tackle that has been everyone's main talking point from this match really um, from UNI Atonio not so much a controversial tackle but rather the refereeing decision to punish him with just a yellow card um, I know the RTE commentators team had said that it was Hugh Cahill said it was a ridiculous decision Donald Lenahan said I'm flabbergasted that's not a red Thoughts? <laughs> yeah, 100%. Like, it's... It does feel a shame to, like, after that test match, be talking about refereeing. And I'm always very aware, and it's especially interesting with Wayne Barnes, because Wayne Barnes has spoken at length and openly about the abuse that match officials receive for getting decisions wrong. And I think Wayne Barnes is one of the best referees in the world. All that aside, I... It's, <laughs> Disclaimer! Yeah. <laughs> It's mad that that's not a red card. Mm. And it's something that rugby can't keep getting wrong. You can't keep messing up these decisions because, especially in a Six Nations, because the reality of the Six Nations is, and some people don't like this, some people think the sport's better off without these floating voters and casual fans, but more people are watching rugby than at any other time of the year, every year during the two months of this championship. And if you were to come in and watch 
that game out of the blue. First of all, you should be very impressed with the quality of the rugby. But you would to see that get a yellow card, you would also be like, that sport doesn't make any sense. Like, that's nuts to allow <laughs> to yeah. allow that to happen. It's like, and I think it's just it's this constant desire to f- try and find mitigation and it's this idea that a oh, red card ruin games we have to try and find ways to keep players on the pitch so you're looking for mitigation and it's you know on one angle and on first viewing because I think that's actually important as well on first viewing I just thought it was a great hit I thought maybe he was offside but I thought it was a great tackle and then on the the replay and the referees obviously have the benefit of the replay by the time I got to about the third replay and you get the right angle, you can see that like Herring's head doesn't snap back because of the force of impact on his body. His head snaps back because the tackle rides up. And you hear Wayne Barnes saying, you know, it's not a high degree of danger for me. Like ask Rob Herring's jaw if it's a high degree <laughs> of danger. Like, um, And it is a real shame. And it's a shame for Rob because... And I wrote about this before as well. It did feel like a really important game for him because um, there has been an impression that it's probably Shane and Kelleher when everybody's fit um, over the last sort of year and a half, I suppose. Rob still played some some big games for Ireland and impressed when he has. But And then you see Tom Stewart being called up in the squad and it's sort of like, you know, the next guy coming through is already, uh, already on the scene. And it felt like a really big game for him to remind some people what he can't do, remind people what he does well, and nail down a place at the World Cup because it's easy to forget that he only got to the last World Cup for like a day and then came back. Um, and I think over the course of this cycle, you know, he's been in and around the squad. It would still surprise me if he didn't make the World Cup, but... It was just a big day from his first Six Nations start in almost two years. And to see it end after 25 minutes because of a bad tackle, obviously looking at this from an Ulster podcast perspective is disappointing. But in the wider sense, there's no bend in that tackle. It's above the ball and it's with force. Although the force doesn't start in the head, it ends up at the head. And that's the kind of thing that rugby as a sport cannot allow to continue if rugby is going to continue as a sport. And the whole point of having the TMO is that you have access to these replays. Anecdotally, I think the standard of refereeing has got worse over the last number of weeks because they're trying to do things quicker. I understand the need to do things quicker because games are taking too long, but this is not an area where you can cut corners. And you end up in this situation where an awful lot of people who aren't regular rugby viewers are coming away thinking that's... Mental? Yeah, and like that's the standard of the sport. And it's like everybody in rugby or everybody who cares about the future of rugby knows that that can't continue and yet we still see these decisions punished by 10 minutes in the sin bin and obviously he's been cited he'll probably get a ban but that's more of a personal punishment the team punishment comes from the red card because the team punishment comes by how it impacts you in the game in the moment like France have any number of capable tight heads that they can bring in and the loss won't be keenly felt um, or as keenly felt whenever they have other games to play, the loss is keenly felt in the moment, in the game, how it impacts your ability to win the game in which you get sent off. So in order to see these tackles coached out of the game, 
we need to see them first reft out of the game. And if they're not being reft out of the game, it considerably lessens the likelihood that we see them coached out of the game. And this is all the kind of thing that is facilitated by not making the right decision in the moment because you're looking for reasons to not send somebody off. And like you can see, or I, I think you can see when he talks to Matthew Carley, I think Matthew Carley almost like raises an eyebrow <laughs> whenever he says that he's not going to send, uh, that William Barnes says that he's not going to send him off. And like that's what you have an officiating team for as yeah, well. Yeah, so I, I was going to say, if he's raising an eye to that, He's got to say, and I, I understand this point that they have to speed up the game. Matthew Carley's maybe thinking, if I speak up here, then this we're going to start getting into a big back and forth, and we're going to be getting some flack from our bosses for making this a, a twenty a twenty minute conversation about a, a decision or whatever. But um, over exaggerating for effect, of course. But yeah, like if you have four members of your officiating team who are making a decision together. There, there's a reason why they are assistant referees and not touch judges. Like, I remember whenever I came to games initially, they were called touch judges. Now they're called assistant referees. And that's because you are there to help make the referee make the right call. And if you're standing there raising an eyebrow, and look, I'm, I'm sort of speaking here as, as if, you know, I know exactly what Matthew Carley was thinking. But, you know, if you disagree with that decision, speak up. Reminded me of like those scenes in the office where like Michael Scott says something and then it pans to Jim and Jim's just like, I'm going to let him go. <laughs> looks, looks directly at the camera. Oh, yeah. That, <laughs> I'm just imagining Matthew Carley now staring down one of the cameras hoping it catches him. Um, I think Johnny's made exactly the point that I, I was going to make, which is that rugby, in essence, has to go through a period, and I say this in very, very strong inverted commas, a period where it suffers in that you have to penalise every tackle like this to the highest degree. And that is the only way that you start to get coaches to coach it out. Like coaches, you know, I, I was having a chat with my dad. Actually, my dad back in the day played uh, played rugby for Ballymena Academy. And he said they were never taught to... Uh, tackle anywhere above the waist every single tackle was coached as waist level take the legs bring them down my brother played rugby for wallace he said one of the first things they were coached whenever they started to get up to towards that sort of senior level was one player in to take the legs second player in to take the ball you know like sort of top of the chest level so clearly there has been a change in coaching and we know that this is due to the professional era. You know, that this is part of the coaching in the professional era. The way you take it out of the game is you start penalizing every single head hit, unless there is significant mitigation. And whenever I say significant, I mean like the ball carrier is dipping down to a significantly low level or the ball carrier is already significantly on his way down to the ground or something, and there's nothing the tackler can do. That does not apply to Antonio. Antonio was as upright as you can possibly be making a tackle. 
So unless there is significant and extremely obvious mitigation, you've got to be penalizing every head hit to the highest degree. And that is the way that you make this game safer because that is what forces coaches to make the change because they know that if they get it wrong, then their players are going to go off and their chances of winning games is going to go down and that affects their jobs and that affects their livelihoods. You have got to make this game as safe as possible. And just... Even just from a perspective of so that the game stops being talked about in these ways. You know, at the moment, what what's the biggest talking point about rugby at the moment? It's the fact that you've got all these concussion lawsuits coming in that ex-players are taking. Do you want that to be a recurring theme? Because the fact that just because these are the first ones that have come through doesn't mean that it's not been a problem in the past. And the fact is, these are only going to get more and more. You know, now that other former players are seeing these players come forward. They're like, well, I've been having these problems. What if I go and get diagnosed? I'm going to bring a lawsuit. And that's only going to continue because you've got a lot of players who have played the game and retired since these guys have brought these lawsuits. So for for the good of the game, for the good of players, for the good of coaches, you have to start being or taking an extremely hardline stance on this. And I don't, if any who follows rugby or has any sort of passion for rugby has a problem with that then I would say you're not probably someone who has the proper interests of rugby at heart I think it is important to mention at the time of recording Antonio is going to face a disciplinary hearing today and he is in danger of being suspended for France's remaining Six Nations games against Scotland, England and Wales but we don't know as at the time of recording what the outcome of that is just yet Focusing on more positive uh, aspects of the game, how did you think the Ulster players in general fared out, Adam? I think McCluskey just continues to go from strength to strength in this championship. Um, I thought he had a great game and I think what one of the things that you're starting to see now is that he is building that relationship with Ring Rose. Now I'm not saying they had a bad relationship before, but you know, just the more you play with guys in games, the more you see little things coming off. And and the fact is, Ireland use him to his strengths, which is that they used him. Was it um, before the Porter try? He was the one who made the the initial carry straight off the the scrum. And it's just always getting the front football. I I think he's just sort of. And and it is a real shame because he's doing pretty much everything he can to hold on to that 12 jersey. And you know as soon as Henshaw comes back, Henshaw's taking that jersey back. But for me... I don't me, know about that, to be honest. I think I would send a really bad message. Henshaw... I, I agree with that, but it's Robbie Henshaw. It's like it's the same with Finley Beelham and Furlong, obviously, but to a lesser degree, I suppose, Gibson Park and Murray and who am I forgetting he's the other player that's missed oh Shane um, mm. um, but like obviously like Lancaster was saying yesterday that Henshaw's not going to play for them this week so he's not going to have played any rugby either so I think if he were to be he was training with Ireland last week but if he were to be parachuted straight back into the Italy game having not played any rugby I don't think I could be completely wrong about this but I don't think that would be the message that Farrell's trying to send about his squad. I do think it's probably an easier decision to keep McCluskey in than it is to keep Bielem in, even though they're very, it's a very similar 
scenario, but I think Bielham's probably more, or sorry, Furlong is more unique in terms of what he brings to his position throughout world rugby than Henshaw is, but I don't know. It wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if Henshaw has to uh, earn the jersey back, given the way that McCluskey's played. Certainly, like I don't think McCluskey's done anything worthy of being dropped. Like I think if McCluskey is dropped for Henshaw, it's because it's Henshaw. I don't think it's because of anything McCluskey's done. Because for someone who has been in the international wilderness for so long, and very easily, and I I know he's sort of said that he's had his frustrations with sort of being being in the international wilderness and not really getting uh, uh, the shot that I think everyone believes he deserved. He he could be someone who wouldn't have come into camp with the right mindset, but I think he's he has. He has pulled on that green jersey and he has done an incredible job. And yeah, if he, if he's dropped, it's not for anything that he's done. It's for Henshaw, um, but we'll we'll see what. Uh, personally, I think Farrell would bring Henshaw back in, but we'll see what he does. Uh, we've already mentioned Herring. I mean, it, it's so unfortunate. Like you finally get your chance whenever Callagher and and Sheehan have been the two who have sort of been battling it out for that for that number two jersey. You finally get your chance, and it's unfairly taken away from you. So. It's tough on him. But the the guy I want to talk about is Oto. Like, that's an unbelievable performance off the bench. I had the stats to hand. Was it something like 56 metres off eight carries or something like that? It might be even more than that. Uh, Yeah, it was definitely eight carries and it was topping 50 metres in 19 minutes. Yeah. Like, for someone who firstly has been injured for so much of this season, secondly has played second fiddle to Marty Murr with Ulster. Um, and thirdly, we were sort of questioning, you know, whether, you know, Tamang Allen's recent form might have put him maybe down to third. Probably not, but, you know, Tamang Allen's been playing so well recently that there's so much depth now at tight head for Ulster. For him to come on and put in that performance against the world's number two ranked nation in a game of that magnitude, whenever you are being relied upon to come on and turn the tide, that to me is a massive testament. And I I don't blame a lot of Ulster fans for probably sitting there and thinking, where has this been? You know, I I don't think we've seen a performance like that from Tom O'Toole. I can't even think of a performance like that, but just the impact he made. Like, I think one of of his first touches was that sort of carry up the middle. um, And... <coughs> Excuse me. <Bless> you. <laughs> I don't think we we've seen that from him in a long time, and I don't know if it's maybe the being down in the Ireland camp that has sort of reinvigorated him, or if Andy Farrell has said something to him and he's changed something to his game. But he just looked like the destructive prop that Ulster are have been crying out for for a long time, and if that's what you can expect from him going forward, then there's no doubt that he is in that Ireland camp for for good. Well, I was going to say, you know, talking about the psychology around being in that team, like Adam, you are saying, you don't know if Andy Farrell said something to him, but sometimes, because Ireland are on this winning streak and it feels like mentality-wise, they probably feel like 
they can't lose. Like Johnny Saxon came out after and said himself, you know, that they essentially, like he says, it's unsaid, but they are going for the Grand Slam. Similarly, you know, Ulster obviously had that really bad run in the lead up to to the Six Nations break. So maybe it is just that that change in in psyche and being around a winning mentality instead. Maybe that's something they can bring back to to Ulster with them, Johnny. What do you think? Yeah, definitely. I think there's always a case that having guys involved with Ireland and especially when it's a good Ireland team and them coming back with the confidence that at the minute they should all be taking because like Hendy's been good too. It's not really been spoken about, but like he's been good too off the bench in the last two games and we'll probably get you would imagine, unfortunately for Tyg Byrne, you would imagine he's going to miss the rest of the championship. So Hendy will get a run now starting as well. Um, all those guys coming back in should be a huge benefit to Ulster. I agree with Adam that the big sort of headline grabbing performance so far from an Ulster perspective has been that Tomo Tool cameo, even though it was only 19 minutes, because that's the first sort of you know, we know how good Henderson is, we know how good McCluskey is, but you were sort of watching O'Toole being like, where did that, you know, where, where, where did that come from? Because um, by far his best performance for Ireland and yeah, like Adam, you're sort of trying to think, has he actually ever had a better game than that for Ulster as well? Um, now, there is the caveat and um, I don't want to downplay anything, but there is the caveat that there weren't any scrums, which is obviously the big thing for Tom and has been. But, you know, Andy Farrell last week credited the work that he's done at Ulster at the set piece and says that he's really come on in that area. And, you know, in turn, that will increase everybody's level of confidence in him if he can hold his own at the set piece. Um, spoke to Dan McFarland about this yesterday and he was saying about how Tom's attitude to things is that he doesn't really have a stop button but he's now learning that you know sometimes you have to be uh, curb the aggression a little bit and think about things sometimes when it comes to the set piece and um, how he's really coming on in that regard and another thing as well is like you know McFarland was talking about this yesterday of if a guy starts he may only get say 8 to 10 scrums in a game but if he can get another 8 to 10 quality scrums in training, then that's going to double the, essentially the amount of reps that he gets. And at Ulster now, you know, you've got, I suppose, if you throw Tom Stewart into the mix as somebody who's now training with Ireland, you know, you've got five internationally capped front rows plus Tom Stewart. So that's a great position to be in in terms of your depth, but it's also a great position to be in in terms of the level of competition that you have at set piece time in training. You know, we hear an awful lot, like Johnny Sexton said it about Ireland, um, that when they ever they had a 15 v 15 game um, in the build up to the Six Nations, you couldn't have told which team was going to be the one that was playing Wales at the weekend. And I think if you take that to Ulster and look at, um, obviously Marty Murray's out injured at the minute, but um, the fact that they can put out that level of... Um, roster of props and hookers that's only going to benefit all of the guys that are in training because they're going to be getting obviously not with the same intensity but you're probably going against higher quality players in training than you could be in most of your or maybe not most but a percentage of your URC games Speaking of Ulster 
It's a good segue into that there. Johnny, uh, they're still without Robert Balakoon for Friday night's crucial URC visit to Glasgow. After two idle weekends, the Northern Province head to Scotstown for what will be the first of three consecutive away games, knowing that a key run awaits. Um, they're still third in the table. They're just four points ahead of fifth place Warriors with the race for home seating come the playoffs really heating up. So they're making the trip without Irish international Balakoon. He hasn't played since 7th of January thanks to a hamstring injury. Um, what is there any other sort of updates with the team news, Johnny, or what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, I mean, still no Will Addison. Um, Jacob Stockdale, Tom Stewart released back to play. Interestingly, Rob Little is a doubt, um, having picked up some sort of knock over the last two weeks. So that's going to be interesting in terms of what you do in the back three. Um, there's a possibility of Lukey Marshall being back, which means I suppose you could go Schumann, Marshall and midfield and Moor on the wing again, which we have seen. Moxham, I thought, had a good game against Stormers. Feels like a long time ago now, that Stormers game, but Moxham had a good game there. Uh, you would imagine Jacob comes straight back in. Um, but it's going to be interesting in terms of uh, selection there. You, The rest of the team probably picks itself, I'm guessing. You're probably going to see the same pack as against Stormers. I can't see too much change there. Do we know about Rory Sutherland being released? Rory Sutherland's back. Yep, yeah. sorry. Um, yeah, he's back. Um, and looking game time, presumably. Mm. Um, in the same boat as Stuart and Stockdale. So me and Adam, so, like we talked about this too long a few weeks ago when you weren't here to keep us on track, Neef. Um, <laughs> so we've talked about how important this run of games is. And to me... I don't know whether anybody else feels like... To me, it feels mad that there's only six games left. Like, yes. this feels like the start of the running, even though it still feels very much like winter. It feels like we're setting ourselves up for spring rugby now. And this run of three games, so um, for anyone that doesn't know, I'm sure anyone that cares to listen to this does, but Glasgow, Sharks, Cardiff away. So, you know, you've got these three games and then a two-week break for the Six Nations... And yes, there'll be European weeks thrown in here and there. But then after this, like, but by the time you finish this present run of three games, you've only got three games left after that. And again, like, sort of put this to Al McFarland yesterday that Glasgow have kind of crept up the table by stealth. And he said, no, they haven't. They've stormed up the table because they've been playing so well. We all knew how big that Stormers game was a few weeks ago in advance I think it's only slowly dawning on people how big this Glasgow game is as well because if you look at the table like four points between them and four points being the difference between third and fifth and we know that all these teams are going for second but the difference between third and fifth is massive because we talked about this a few weeks back that's the difference between hosting a quarterfinal and going on the road in a quarterfinal if you go on the road in a quarterfinal especially if you end up going to, to South Africa there's a real chance that one you're going to lose, but you're also missing out in the gate of the added home game in the playoffs. So it's massive financially to get that and competitively to get that um, as a baseline to get that home quarterfinal, even though Ulster should be going for the for the home semi-final. So this run is huge. Team selection is going to play a big part in it. You know, Ulster are without four players through international selection. I think Glasgow are without eight I think um, 
The South African sides don't have their internationals at the minute either, which puts a wholly different complexion on Ulster's trip to the Sharks that would have been played in October when they were completely fully loaded with what was essentially half of a Springbok team. And then it'll be the same for Cardiff in terms of missing Welsh internationals. Um, Who knew gastroenteritis had an upside? Well, I mean, we'll, we'll see, but like... We've finally been able to pronounce that word, by the way. <laughs> After months, we've really moved up. I think that Ulster's chances of winning that game are considerably more now than they were at the time. I agree. Um, so again, it comes down to, like, you know, can you win two out of three of these games? Probably as a minimum... Can you win three out of three of these games? I think if you only win one out of the three, I think you're probably in trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, Stormers beating Sharks, actually, it was a bad result for Ulster. Yeah, so, it was a very bad result for Ulster. Because um, oh, Ulster had closed the gap to Stormers and then um, by beating them last time out, and then Stormers extended that out by beating the Sharks in Durban, which I think an awful lot of us have probably looked at and thought that was going to be a Sharks win whenever mm. you're doing the doing the math and totting things up for how things are going to go over these last, uh, I suppose, two months really. But um, it feels quite strange because like this time of year always feels quite a, a bitty part of the season. It always feels like a bit of a sideshow to the Six Nations, but like this is a massive, massive period of Ulster season. Like it's, it's hard to overstate how big a period mm. this is. I mean, we're we're in a situation where, and we're talking very worst case scenario here. By the way, it would take two bonus point losses, as sorry, as in two five nil ma- match points losses uh, over the next two weeks, and for the Sharks to pick up uh, two bonus point wins over the next two weeks. Ulster could be down in, I believe, sixth by the uh, fifth, fifth, definitely. I think they could be down as low as sixth if they lose both of these games. Whereas, contrarily, if they go as well as they could, they could be back uh, two points of second place. You know, like it's the margins are so small right now that every missed point like even if you don't get a bonus point this weekend and like i don't expect ulster to get a bonus point this weekend because glasgow are a very good side this year and that i i think if they got a win this week it would be a great result but even if you don't get a bonus point it feels like you know have we lost ground on someone because it, it, it is that tight and that's it's exciting as a neutral but from an Ulster perspective, you know, you have to be maximizing your points return in every single game. And I, I agree with Johnny. I think the Sharks game, they now have a better chance than what they would if they had played it at the time. This week, you've got to snap back into focus. Like, don't forget, you know, Ulster are only two games removed from being on a run that is potentially the worst that they've ever been on since either of us started covering the team. You know, and as much as they were improved in the uh, in the seal game, and they improved again a little bit more in the Stormers game, they've now gone on a a two week break. Coming back in this week, are they going to be able to continue that momentum? Well, we don't know. You know, we do, we don't know how training's been going. We don't know they can say all the right things, but. You know, we'll only really see if they're able to continue that momentum whenever they get on the pitch on on Friday, and it's massive for them to pick up where they left off whenever they 
they finish that run and sort of find what they found during that Stormers game and during that Stormers week and bring it back in for this week. So honestly, it, it feels like a make or break week for Ulster. If you are able to find what you had during that Stormers week and bring it into this week and get a result, then Ulster is set up really well for the end of the season. They're they're back. They've proved to themselves that they are the team that finished that run, not the team that started it. And they can go to South Africa in confidence that they're not facing a fully loaded shark side and can potentially get the result there. Lose this game and all those doubts could start flooding back. So this is, for me, an extremely pivotal week for them. What's your quickfire prediction for, for score and result, Adam? For Friday night. You said quickfire and I'm not sure I'm able to go quickfire. <laughs> I'm going to say they edge it, but it's going to be a really tight game. Really, really close the whole way through. Do you agree, Johnny? I don't know. I, like, I need to see the teams, but um, without the luxury of 48 hours, um, <laughs> I think Glasgow, like, no, you know, Leinster are the only team to beat Glasgow in the last 11 games. And they're very, very good at home. So I'll put it this way. If Ulster were to win, it would be right up there for me in their most impressive wins this season nope, no pressure then for Dan McFarland and the boys uh, it's a good note to end on there <laughs> thanks for listening as always to Inside Ulster we will be back next Tuesday with analysis of that Ulster game and looking ahead to the Ireland v Italy clash next weekend as well you can catch up with all the news views and analysis of rugby from both Johnny and Adam on Belfast Telegraph.co.uk and of course in the paper thanks very much and see you later